Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in today's episode I'm joined by a master of domestic noir who has over 70 million books in print worldwide. He's captivated readers with his gripping standalone thrillers and with his best-selling Myron Bolitar crime series. He's Harlan Coburn. Harlan, welcome. Hey Connie, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. All the better for seeing you. Thank you, nice to be in London. And nice to have you here. Now Harlan is going to be telling us about his new book, Don't Let Go, and he's brought along a number of objects that have shaped and influenced his writing career and we're very much looking forward to hearing the stories behind them. Harlan, Don't Let Go is your 30th novel and follows 10 consecutive novels that have all debuted at number one, no less, on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. Yeah, it's exciting, yeah. That's a lot to live up to, though, isn't it? Each time you're pending a new one, does that make you think, I'll break my run if this doesn't make it? Well, I'm not about the run so much, but the uh, the pressure has always been self-inflicted. You know, I've always wanted to make the next book better than the one before. And I think when that goes away, it's when you're starting to phone it in. But so each book, I want to somehow be better. doesn't mean I'm right, but I work on it and hope it will be better than the than the book before. So that pressure is all self-induced, if you will. You're competing with yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the old pressures... You know, people say, oh, there's a lot of pressure on you. Well, pressure was when I was trying to get published. Pressure is when you're trying to make a living. Pressure is when you're hoping to scratch a bestseller list. So that pressure is all sort of gone now. The financial pressures are gone now. So it's just, you know, me running against myself trying to make sure I give you the best read you can have. Ah, that's a nice pressure to have. So what can readers expect from Don't Let Go? Can you set the scene for us? Well, it's sort of interesting... I grew up in a town called Livingston, New Jersey, which is a classic American suburb. Myron Bolotar grew up there, too. And when I was a kid, there was a few town legends, if you will, mm. that you didn't know if they were true or not, both of which sound very far-fetched. The first was that there was a mafiosa leader named the Little Boot who lived near us, Richie the Boot. And it was rumors that he actually had a crematorium in his yard. And if you went in his yard, people got shot and all of this stuff. And we later found out that was pretty much true. He was the basis for The Godfather and a bit of The Sopranos, Richie the Boot. The other legend, which is going to sound absolutely ridiculous, was that in the middle of this beautiful suburban town, right near where Richie the Boot lived in the woods, um, there was a military base with Nike nuclear missiles that were defending America in the 50s and the 60s and the early 70s. Right, absolutely ridiculous. Turns out it was also true. Oh, my gosh. Yes. It turns out it was true. So we had heard these stories growing up, and now I know they're true. So I started to think about that military base that we used to, like, be afraid to go in the woods and sort of see, and you'd get chased away, and you'd kind of wonder what was there. And that was sort of what I started to think about um, with Don't Let Go. What if a bunch of the kids that were hanging around there, something went really wrong one day years ago? What secret could it possibly have kept besides being the military base? That event of these kids who were wandering in the woods sort of exploded in a million different directions. And now it's years later and all of their lives have been shattered in some way. And so now we're going to try to figure out what really happened. I've noticed that your books often span 
decades or, you know, it will revert back to something that happened at childhood. Yeah. Or Is that a conscious decision or do you think that makes a better structure for a book or how, how does it come about? Well, as you pointed out, I've written 30 novels. Yeah. So there's probably not a crime or a scenario. <laughs> and, I, and they're very plot heavy that I haven't in some way covered. But yeah, I love the idea of... Um, trying to put something in the past that just doesn't stay there, trying to, to get away with something, thinking you have, but it mm. never really goes away. Um, also, life is a series, if you think of it, life is a series of what ifs. Life is a series of sliding doors, right? Yeah. That person you would have dated, the school you could have gone to, every person you date is a, is a what if. What if I'd stayed with that person? What if I hadn't? And so I love to explore that, the alternate universe that could have happened had one little thing been different. Yeah, it's intriguing. Well, look, without further ado, an extract from Don't Let Go. Read by John Chancer. Daisy wore a clingy black dress with a neckline so deep it could tutor philosophy. She spotted the mark sitting at the end of the bar, wearing a pinstripe gray suit. Hmm. The guy was old enough to be her dad. That might make it more difficult for her to make her play but then again, it might not. You never knew with the old guys. Some of them, especially the recent divorcees, were all too ready to preen and prove they still had it, even if they'd never had it in the first place, especially if they'd never had it in the first place. As Daisy sauntered across the room, she could feel the eyes of the male patrons crawling down her bare legs like earthworms. When she reached the end of the bar, she made a mild production of lowering herself onto the stool next to him. The mark peered into the glass of whiskey in front of him, as though he were a gypsy with a crystal ball. She waited for him to turn toward her. He didn't. Daisy studied his profile for a moment. His beard was heavy and gray. His nose was bulbous and putty-like almost as though it were a Hollywood silicone special effect. His hair was long, straggly, mop-like. Second marriage, Daisy figured. Second divorce in all probability. Dale Miller, that was the mark's name, picked up his whiskey gently. He cradled it in both hands, as though it were an injured bird. Hi, Daisy said, with a much-practiced hair toss. Miller's head turned toward her. He looked her straight in the eyes. She waited for his gaze to dip down the neckline. Heck, even women did it with this dress. But it stayed on hers. Hello, he replied. Then he turned back to his whiskey. Daisy usually let the mark hit on her. That was her go-to technique. She said, hi, like this. She smiled. The guy asked whether he could buy her a drink. You know the deal. But Miller didn't look to be in the mood to flirt. He took a deep swallow from his whiskey glass, then another. That was good. The heavy drinking. That would make this easier. Your suburban growing up has helped to shape much of what's in your books. And the theme of our podcast is people bring in objects that they have picked up along the way. Tell me about object number one. Well, let's see. Let's pick up this, which is a brown paper bag. It is. Just an empty brown paper bag. And the story behind this is when I was growing up, 
in Livingston, New Jersey. We didn't have a ton of money, but we loved books. And so on weekends, we would drive into New York City, and there was a bookstore annex on 18th Street. It was actually a Barnes & Noble, but this is before Barnes & Noble was a big chain. And you would be handed a brown paper bag like this, mm-hmm. and you could fill it for $5. You get many books as you want, many ways you want. You should see my mother was like a, all of a sudden like a geometry major trying to figure out the maximum amount of books we could put in there. Literally Tetris yes, it <laughs> with was books exactly, in a brown it was paper Tetris, bag. Tetris, exactly what it was like. It was like my dad, you know how your father packs the boot. You know, they would, <laughs> So we would go there, and we would literally spend all day and it would cost the family five dollars. Brilliant! Come on, we would be reading the books, and it was so. It's a very special memory for me, um, and probably one of the early places uh, that I learned about story and learned about reading and learned having a love for books. Were all your brothers and sisters into books? Yes, there's three. Well? So there's three boys. I have an older brother. This is my younger brother, and so all of us. That was a family of fives activity. But, yeah, it was a sort of common family thing we would right. do. And you'd be scrabbling over the books to cram them all in your bag before yes. your brothers got well, the better the time, books. I, especially my brothers were faster readers than I would. You would almost read the entire book while you were just there because that well, was encouraged, that kind of browsing, which is still encouraged. I mean, that's still the beauty of a bookstore, right? You know. Oh, yeah. I, I, this is why I never thought online book selling would work. Um, I get it now. But when it first came on, I'm like, but what about the joy of going in a bookstore and smelling the book and feeling it and walking around and, I don't know, and just being around books? You can't replace that with a click of a button, can you? But the two different things, and that's what's sort of been interesting to me about Yeah, no, the they are technology. sort of a different experience. Yeah. Both. What books would be in your bag? Was it an eclectic mix or, or was it crime thrillers? Or? I've always been into fiction. Um, I rarely, even to this day, I rarely read nonfiction. I'm not, I guess that's part of my profession, but so that was always the way it was. As a child, you know, some of my childhood favorites, C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, Madeline Engel's Wrinkle in Time series, which I look back on, a lot of them had to do with what I do, which is disappearing people. I mean, uh, Madeline Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time is about a lot of things, but at its hardest, it's a search for their missing father. And so I think that that's, you know, those are the things that always sort of uh, attracted and appealed to me about those early books and Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was another one. You know, if you think about suspense and you think about wanting... If you remember, everyone's read that book, but you can still remember how much you wanted Charlie to get that golden mm. ticket, right? I mean, if you're listening right now, you're remembering that moment. How did Roald do that to you, make you want Charlie so badly to get that ticket? That's writing, that's suspense, that's storytelling. Absolutely. Well, from your childhood love of reading to your current novel, let's hear another extract from the audiobook of Don't Let Go. Reynolds and Bates naturally want to question me right now. In the car, I insist. I want to see the scene. We are all heading down the brick walkway my father put in himself twenty years ago. I take the lead. They hurry to catch up. Suppose we don't want to take you with us, Reynolds says. I stop walking and do a toodaloo finger wave. Bye-bye, then. Safe ride back. Bates really doesn't like me. We can compel you to answer. You think? Okay. I turn to head back inside. Let me know how that turns out. 
Reynolds gets up in my face. We are trying to find a cop killer here. Me too. I'm a very good investigator. I just am. No reason for false modesty here. But I need to see the scene myself. I know the players. I may be able to help. Either way, if Mara is back, there is no way I'm letting this go. I don't really want to explain all this to Reynolds and Bates. How long is the ride? I ask. Two hours if we speed. I spread my arms, welcoming-like. You'll have me alone in the car for all that time. Imagine all the questions you can ask. Bates frowns. He doesn't like it. Or maybe he's so used to playing bad cop to Reynolds's reasonable one that he is set on automatic. They will cave. We all know this. It's just a question of how and when. An extract from Don't Let Go. It's time for your next object, Harlan. A copy of William Goldman's Marathon Man. Yes. So why have you brought this very well-thumbed, it looks very well-loved <laughs> book to the Penguin Studio. William Goldman's Marathon Man, which people may also remember there was a movie made with Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier. But when I was around 15 or 16, my father tossed me the book and said, you should read this. And I think it was probably my first adult thriller. And what I remember about it is as soon as I started it, it was so gripping. I literally could not put it down. If you put a gun against my head, I don't think I would have put it down. And while at that time I didn't know I wanted to be a writer, but I think subconsciously I remember reading this book thinking, what a cool profession to be able to make someone feel the way I'm feeling now. And it's something I still think about, that you're taking my book and I, it's 11 o'clock at night and you're just going to read for 10 or 15 minutes and the next thing you know it's 4 in the morning and you're delirious and both angry and happy with me or you're at a hotel in Saint-Tropez and instead of going out you just want to stay in your room and disappear into the world of Myron and Wynn and I think Marathon Man was where I first even though I didn't even know it discovered I wanted to be a writer. So that was quite a turning point book. It was. I, to this day um, I don't know how many books where I, I have felt that way where I just you know there was nothing else but that book. That's a great feeling, isn't it? Honey? Yeah, what? totally. Yeah. I have to say, I read Fool Me Once in about probably a day. Oh, I, it, it's that same <laughs> thing as though when you're sort of addicted and you're like, oh, I need to eat something. Oh, what should I oh, just go back to the book. You're right. It's an amazing thing when you find a book and you're just sort of compelled to keep reading. Yeah. So how did you go about getting your very first book published? I was 26, so it would be 1988 back then. I had written one or two books already as practice. This is something people don't do anymore. Like, I knew they weren't good enough, so I didn't really do much with them. And the third one, I thought, it's probably time to see if it has any potential. So I sent it to somebody I knew at a very small press, and they called and they said, we want to move in a more commercial direction, and we want to publish this. That's how it happened. Now, it was very small. I think they printed maybe 2,500 copies. And by the way, I think over the years, because uh, collectors get them, I've signed 2,700 copies. I don't know how. <laughs> Everyone, every time I do a book signing, someone seems to have a copy. It was a book called Play Dead. And I did two books for them, Play Dead and Miracle Cure. And, and, um, and then I realized that I had to get out of that. I took four or five years between that and trying to think of what I wanted to do next. And that's when I came up with the idea of Myron Bolotar. 
And my first Myron Bolotar book was in paperback original with also a very small print run, no expectations whatsoever, and didn't do all that great for a while. It wasn't until my 10th book that I first hit the New York Times bestseller list. With all this writing that you're doing, do you still find the time to read yourself? Yeah, I do. In fact, I just finished on the plane ride over here. The most amazing novel. It's the second time I've read it. I first read it in 1997, American Pastoral by Philip Roth, which has to go down as one of the top five novels I've ever read. I do read a lot, not as much as I'd like to. It's harder for me to escape into it because I start to analyze it more than I should. The other thing is, though, this when I read, I feel guilty I'm not writing. <laughs> That's the that's the. Can't negative. you think of it as research? I do. That's how I try to justify <laughs> it. But as I'm reading, I'm like, you should be writing your own book right now, shouldn't you? You know, that guilt is a big part of writing anyway. And it comes out a lot as you read. Have you ever read a book and thought, oh, if only I'd done that plot. Or, oh, that would have been brilliant conceit to put in my book. Or do you ever get sort of reading rage or not really? Not, I, when I was maybe very young, what I've kind of discovered is I'm not supposed to write that book. Even if I love the book mm. and there'd be that sort of envy, I know I'm not supposed to write that book. And I also remind myself that if I had written that book, I wouldn't be able to enjoy that book. So... I'm very zen about that. You're supposed to write the book you write. You're not supposed to write the book someone else wrote. And talking of books that you've written, another extract now from the audiobook of Don't Let Go. Hal, the bartender at Larry and Craig's Bar and Grill, has a wistful look on his face. She was smoking hot, Hal says. A small frown begins to surface. Too hot for that old dude, that's for sure. Larry and Craig's Bar and Grill clearly has a bar and clearly has no grill. It's that kind of place. The sticky floor is coated in sawdust and peanut shells. That combo stench of stale beer and vomit wafts from said floor and fills all nostrils. I don't need to take a piss, but if I do, I know the urinal won't flush, but will be overflowing with ice cubes. Reynolds nods at me to take the lead. What did she look like? I ask. Hal is still frowning. What part of hot isn't good English? Redhead, brunette, blonde. Brunette is brown, right? I glance at Reynolds. Yeah, Hal. Brunette is brown. Brunette. Anything else? Hot. Yeah, we got that. Built? Hal says. Reynolds sighs. And she was with a guy, right? She was out of his league, that I can tell you. And you have, I remind him. Did they come in together? No. Who came in first? Reynolds asks. The geezer did. Hal gestures toward me. Sat right where you are now. What did he look like? I ask. Uh, Mid-sixties, long hair, raggedy beard, big nose. Looked like a guy who rode a hog. But he was dressed in a gray suit, white shirt, blue tie. He, you remember, I say. When you're constructing your world, is it harder to write a book for, say, Myron, where you've already invented this is his girlfriend and this is he was a basketball player and blah, 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 blah. 
Or do you prefer to sort of dip into something new and create a new world, or is it two completely different things? The writing is actually fairly similar. There's two differences. One is to compare it to painting a standalone novel, which is what I mostly have done over the last decade and a half, is like a blank canvas. Okay, I can paint anything, do anything. With a Myron, some of that canvas has been filled in, which is somewhat limiting, but mm. I really like what's there. So mm. that's fun. I also look at each Myron novel, and Home is the 11th Myron novel, as a chapter in a larger book, if you will. Um, so I don't know how that book actually ends. That's the one book I don't know how it will end. But I first wrote Myron in Deal Breaker, which came out in 1995. My math's pretty good 22 years ago. Mm. And he was in his early to mid-20s then. He's over 40 now. I've aged him, not in real time, but pretty close to real time. And that's been so exciting and fun. So each Myron book is a chapter in a larger book. But if you've never read a Myron Boltar book and you think, oh, I got to go back to Deal Breaker, I would actually suggest you start with Home and then go back and see how it all worked out. So I try making each book stand on their own. I also know Myron's voice very well. It's easy for me to slip right into being Myron. Because I know he was a professional basketball player yep. and you've got that string to your bow. Is Myron sort of partially you? Well, we can answer this in two ways. One is by looking at object number three that I brought oh, with me. Yes. So I brought a basketball with me. I played college basketball in America. It was a big part of my growing up. I played most of my life. And when I created Myron, writers don't like to admit it, but he is me with wish fulfillment and some differences. I mean, I was a good basketball player. He's a much better basketball player. I'm a little funny. He's much funnier. He always thinks of the line. He's more loyal, he's stronger, he's a better fighter. He's um, basically new, improved you. He's new, improved me, but I haven't beaten two areas. One, I'm a better dancer. I'll demonstrate later. <laughs> um, and two, I'm slightly wiser in the ways of women. This is no great shakes. It's like saying syphilis is better than gonorrhea. <laughs> we're, not, we're not talking about two geniuses here. But, you know, Myron's love life, up until home anyway, I won't give anything away, has been something of a disaster. And my wife and I have been together since I was 20. But what I also did with Myron is I created a weird sort of tension between us where Myron has what I want and I have what Myron wants in life. Myron's whole goal in life is to get married and have kids and move to the suburbs and raise a family, have a barbecue in the yard, and picket fence, all of those sort of things, which is sort of what I, my life is. So Myron is envious of me in that way that I don't allow Myron to have that. On the other hand, my parents died fairly young. And I get very sentimental and overwrite <laughs> the Myron parent scenes. Too bad if you don't like them, they're my therapy, just skip them. So that tension works well for us, where we are no longer alter egos or the same. Our lives have gone in very different directions. Did your parents' deaths impact on your writing? Of course, but everything does. I mean, every part of you having a kid impacts on your writing. Um, there's no question, and this is not a silver lining of any sort, that their deaths, especially my father's, which was the first one out of nowhere, definitely made me a better writer. It's not a price you want to pay, but some of the tragedies that I had in my life earlier on definitely are reflected in the book. That said, I don't believe the old saw that you have to suffer for your art or any of that. But there's no questions given the writing a, better, a bigger dimension. Yeah. Well, it's more real when you're writing yeah. it. It's well, when I write a thriller, I, I want I want there to be a, a tremendous amount of emotion. I mean, it's one thing I can plot like crazy, I can twist and turn you, I can fool you in the end, and and hopefully I have. 
But I hope what makes people come back is the heart, that you are genuinely moved by the ending of Home. You are genuinely moved by what happens at the end of Fool Me Once. If that doesn't happen, I don't think I've, I've done my job. If you just go, wow, what a surprise, and move on, I'm not sure I'm satisfied. OK, so back now to your book, Don't Let Go. Here's another extract from the audiobook. The Nike Basin Livingston, Ellie says. It's a park now, for artists. The old army barracks have been converted to artist studios. The launcher base in East Hanover was torn down to make room for a housing development. There's another base down in Sandy Hook, where you can take a Cold War tour. We lean forward. The woods are completely still. No birds coo. No leaves rustle. I can hear only the sound of my own breathing. The past does not simply die away. Whatever happened here still haunts these grounds. You can feel that sometimes. When you visit ancient ruins or old estates, or when you are alone in the woods like this, the echoes quiet, fade away, but they never go completely silent. So what happened to this Nike base after it closed? Ellie asks me. That, I say, is what the conspiracy club wanted to find out. Another extract from Don't Let Go. So how much research goes into one of your books? I'll be honest with you that um, I'm not the best researcher. And in fact, I recommend to writers that are out there, people who want to write, to not do research. I'm the only writer you will have in here, I'm sure, <laughs> Connie. You've spoken to many writers who will discourage research and say, I'm actually from the, what I call the hum a few bars and fake it school of research. But let me, let me, let me, let me tell you why... I think this. Um, there's two reasons. One is research is more fun than writing. So, you know, I love to do research. You know, I could go out and explore things. I can go to museums. I can go to the police station and all that because it's a lot more fun than writing. No, no, no. Don't use this as an excuse not to write. Write it. Like, you know, there's that scene I'm going to, oh, I'm going to write a scene uh, uh, by Big Ben. Oh, I got to drive down and look at Big Ben and, and watch the people walk by and, and smell the food they're carrying. No, no, no. You've been there. You know what it's like. Use your imagination. Write the scene now. And then if you need to fill in more later, do it. But don't let research be an excuse not to write. The second thing is research also gives you a lot of interesting information. So we've all read that book where the writer's done a ton of research. He keeps slowing down the story because he's adding that research mm. in because it's so fascinating to him. That's not a problem with me because I don't know anything. So yeah. I can't bore you with too much detail. Too much knowledge is also not a good thing. You can stick to the plot. Yes. And then keep those pages Everything turning. has to be slave to the story. And the other stuff should be added on. Not to oh. say, you know, if you're writing about 15th century Afghanistan, you should know about it. But really, minimize your research. Do you ever get writer's block, though, where you just don't know where to go from here on in pretty much every day oh, i mean really? that's part yeah you I mean you write yourself into corners and you got to figure a way of writing out of it i don't know anybody who doesn't have it i've come to the conclusion that that's just part of the process that things won't go smoothly all the way through usually the hardest part is in the middle the beginning usually is okay my ending i always write very fast i usually write the last 40 to 50 pages in one day. Whoa. I've been thinking about them for a year, but I write them in one day. How long's the longest you've had writer's block for? Oh, see, 
again, I, I don't necessarily write every day, but I think about it every day. Last night I flew in on a plane and as I was in that sort of half sleep thing going on, right? And I was realizing I, I have a character wrong. She, does, she doesn't come from this background, she comes from this background. And in my head, I ran through the whole scenario. So now maybe when I write, it'll clear up some of the places that I'm having issues with. Oh, intriguing. I'm mm. trying to think, which character is that? Is that her? <laughs> okay, so on to your next object. What is the story behind this record that we oh, have Oh, yes. I'm not big on materialistic stuff. You know, I was thinking if my house caught on fire, what would I save? And physically, there's really nothing that would really other than family photos and stuff like that that would matter to me. Most of those um, are in the cloud. Last year, I had a TV show here in the UK called The Five that was on Sky One. It was 10 episodes long. And one of the characters was played by Lee Boardman. He was a evil record producer. And the first time you see him in the beginning, very, very creepy guy. Mm-hmm. Not Lee. Lee's actually a very nice guy, but Lee was playing a creepy guy. Disclaimer. Lee, if you're out there, (laughs) you know, I love you, buddy. And he had these gold records in his house. And they sent me one of the fictional gold records for the song Lucky Girl, which we sang a lot during the show. And this is the only prop from any of the shows that I've worked on that I keep in my house and we have it hung up. And I don't know why I kind of love it. It's kind of cool because it looks like people think I want a gold record or something. (laughs) So this is a wonderful souvenir of that show and a wonderful time in my life making the show with some very, very talented people. I've got to describe this album cover. Belinda Salt, who kind of looks a bit like Kim Wilde, doesn't she? I think think it's a little, definitely a little bit of um, Kim Wilde, a little bit of a few of those people. I actually had to get it reframed because we do everything, of course, on the cheap when it's only going to be up for a few hours. We just found an, an album, regular old record, and we just spray painted a gold. It's not really gold. Yeah. Do you prefer writing for TV than books? I think I know what the answer will be. To me, both are storytelling. And so I love writing for both. Uh, the oh. Five was actually an idea I was going to make into a novel. But with four lead characters, I just always saw it more visually. I enjoy actually TV because... You know, I've, as you mentioned, I've written 30 novels. That's a long time to be alone in my room. And so now I get to play with others. The other comparison I would make is when the book hits number one, I celebrate alone. When a TV show is made or done, it's a whole team. I may be, I'm captain of the football team, and I want all of the guys on my team to celebrate and enjoy and have fun with it. And that was great also. So is there going to be any more TV work in the pipeline? There is. I had a French show called No Second Chance, which is now on Netflix on the UK, based on my book, No Second Chance. And we just finished filming Just One Look, um, starring Virginie Le Doyon, who many of you may remember from the movie The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. And I can't announce anything with the British show that I'm currently working on, but uh, hopefully I'll have big news on that fairly soon. Okay, so it's time now to hear a final clip from the audiobook of Don't Let Go. I wait as Augie stares at the photograph of his 17-year-old daughter, who never came home that night. When he finally speaks again, it's like something heavy is sitting on his chest. They were just kids, Nab. I can feel my grip on the glass tighten. Stupid, inexperienced kids. They drank too much. They mixed pills with the alcohol. It was dark. It was late. 
Were they just standing on the tracks? Were they running down them, laughing and high and never knew? Were they playing chicken with the train, trying to jump across the tracks, the same game that killed Jimmy Riccio back in 1973? I don't know, Nap. I wish I did. I wish I knew exactly what happened. I want to know if Diana suffered, or was it quick? I want to know if she turned at the last second and knew that her life was about to end, or if she was oblivious when she died. See, my one job, my only job, was to protect her, and I let her go out that night. And so I wonder if she was scared that night. I wonder if she knew that she was going to die. And if she did, did she call out my name? Did she yell for her father? Did she hope that somehow maybe I'd be able to save her? I don't move. I can't move. You're going to look into this, aren't you? I manage to nod. Then I'm able to say, Yeah. He hands me the yearbook and starts out of the room. Maybe you should do it on your own. What's it like when you hear one of your books as an audiobook? To be honest with you, I don't listen past the first couple of minutes because it's very hard for me. I still want to change things. I was really lucky the last couple of books where the readers have been, I think, outstanding. It's hard for me to reread my own books because you still want to correct them. Mm. You know, uh, you have to kind of let them go. Oh. Would you ever be tempted to voice your own audiobook? I did one, and it was horrendous experience. Oh, really? Well, what happened was I had written seven Myron Boltar books in a row, and we had the same guy read them, and that was from 95 to 2000. And then I didn't write Myron again until 2006, a book called Promise Me. Six years, six years had passed, and that guy had retired, so he couldn't do Myron anymore. So the publisher said, well, why don't you do it? And I was like, well, I'll try anything once. So I did it. I don't know how bad or good I was, but the problem really was for people who loved the audiobooks, it was like they tuned into their favorite TV show and every actor had changed. And my voice was yeah. different. For my, and they would say, well, that's not what Wynn sounds like. I'm like, yeah, I think I know what Wynn sounds like better than <laughs> inner guy does, but because they were used to the other voice. It's also very difficult. I mean, we are in the studio now, but you sit there, you put a pillow on your lap because if, if your stomach makes a noise, it's ruined. Mm. I also, as some of you may notice, speak rather quickly. When you are doing the audio book, you speak like this. And then I would forget an accent or the women's voice is not overdoing it. it it's a week. It was a week of, of, doing the, of doing it. It was kind of hard. I take it you didn't enjoy it at all. Didn't love it. No. i to be honest. Didn't yeah. love it. Oh, well. You get the more fun job of writing it. Nah, so. I don't know if it's more fun, but it's... For me, it's better. It's yeah. You've described it as the best gig ever. But it is the best gig ever. Yeah. Yes, but it doesn't mean it's easy. But it's the best no, gig ever. No, nothing. Nothing good is, is easy. Nothing good is easy. True, I always true. tell my kids that nothing good is easy. Very true. Okay. Well, look, we have come to your final object now. Uh-huh. What is it? Well, I this don't... is just fun. Well, you have the TV show Modern Family. We do here. indeed. It's a very popular show. Okay. So. One of the head writers on it is a guy named Danny Zucker, who is an old friend of mine. We went to high school together. So as a little wink and nod at Danny, I made him a villain in a book. 
So Danny, to get quasi-revenge on me, in one of the episodes, there is a Dr. Coben and also a, a guy who helps Gloria baby-proof the house named Harlan. <laughs> and so Danny sent me the script signed by several of the cast members and himself as a sort of tribute back to me. And it's just a fun thing. I love the show, too. Mm. They've done such a, a great, great job. And um, it was fun to see uh, Dr. Coben and Harlan on an episode of Modern Family. Is this going to be a Spielberg-Lucas thing? Are there going to be other <laughs> crossovers cropping up in the future? Watch this space. This is more of a subtle wink and nod. Yeah, that would be good if all the characters had their shelves That's lined it. with your books. He's yes. missing a trick there. Yeah. Now, you've got a big family yourself on the subject of modern family. You've got, is it four children? I do. When my fourth was born was the day I first hit the New York Times bestseller list. So I had a newborn, two-year-old, four-year-old, and almost seven-year-old. So four kids at that age, in the, the, that day. Lots yeah. of sleepless nights. Yes. <laughs> Which I is look good back for writing. On, like, do you write at night or in the day? Well... Or? I write, my ritual of writing is not to have a ritual. I write, I do whatever works until it stops working and then I do something else. And right now I write better in the mornings. Toward the end of a book I write all day long, 24, 48 hours straight almost. Mm. Um, so it all depends, whatever's working. And um, do you always write from home or do you have a special place like your study or whatever that you write? Again, because my ritual is the way, it has no ritual. If I'm doing, you know, two books ago... I took an Uber into New York City one day. I felt guilty about spending the extra money. There wasn't really that much extra money, but I had to justify it in my head. So I sat in the back of the Uber and I wrote. And I wrote really well. So I started taking Ubers wherever <laughs> I went for about three weeks. And I wrote Expensive probably a third of that space. book. About a third of that book I probably wrote, in, or at least outlined in Ubers. What is next? Because you've had all these TV shows, you've just done two books. You tell me, what's next? I'm working on another TV series. I just finished a screenplay based on Fool Me Once for Julia Roberts. I hope it'll get made. We'll see. I love to tell stories. I have nothing else in my life. It's not like I have hobbies or anything else. I don't know what else I would do with myself mm. other than to write. This is actually what relaxes me. It's something I take very seriously in this way, and that is you know, some of the people out there who are listening hopefully read my book. So I think of it like you're walking into a bookshop or whatever else, and you have all of that choice and all that selection and you're going to drop 5, 10, 20 pounds, whatever it is, on reading my book, choosing mine, that's a real honor. And I take that really seriously. I I want you not to regret that. I want you to be thrilled that you made that choice. And so I really work hard to make sure that you have the best reading experience, if you will. I'm not going to put anything out there just for the sake of doing that. That's sort of my promise or, or to, to my readers. That's the, that's the bond that I have with, hopefully, with my readers. I think you do. And on that note, thank you so much. Thank it's been you, a pleasure. Tom. It's been great. Thank you. New from Penguin Random House Audio. From the best-selling author of Fatherland, Conclave and An Officer and a Spy comes an exceptional high-stakes thriller. Munich by Robert Harris. Chamberlain sat back in his chair. His forefingers tapped the table... Of course, that would mean we would mobilise before the Germans. Partially mobilised, Prime Minister. And there is something else to be said for it. It would have the effect of showing Hitler we aren't bluffing, that if it comes to it, we are prepared to fight, 
It might even make him think twice. It might. Or it might push him into war. Remember, I have stared into that man's eyes on two occasions now, and in my judgment, if there is one thing he cannot tolerate, it is losing face. But surely, if we're going to fight, it's important he should be left in no doubt of that fact. It would be a tragedy if he interpreted your courageous visits and your sincere efforts for peace as a sign of weakness. Wasn't that the mistake the Germans made in 1914? They thought we weren't serious. Chamberlain folded his arms and stared at the table. Leggett couldn't tell whether the gesture meant he had rejected the suggestion or was considering it. Shrewd of Backhouse to flatter him, he thought... The PM had few obvious weaknesses, but strangely for such a shy man, his besetting vice was vanity. The seconds ticked by. Finally, he looked up at Backhouse and nodded. Very well. Mobilise. The First Sea Lord stubbed out his cigarette and stuffed his papers into his briefcase. I'd better get back to the Admiralty. The others rose with him, grateful to escape. Chamberlain called up to them... I would like you to hold yourselves in readiness to brief senior ministers later today. In the meantime, we should avoid doing or saying anything that contributes to a mood of public panic, or forces Hitler into a position from which he cannot back down, even at the eleventh hour. After the chiefs of staff had gone, Chamberlain let out a long sigh and rested his head in his hand. Glancing sideways, he seemed to notice Leggett for the first time, were you making a note of all that? Yes, Prime Minister. Destroy it. September 1938. Hitler is determined to start a war. Chamberlain is desperate to preserve the peace. The issue is to be decided in a city that will forever afterwards be notorious for what takes place there. Munich. Available to download and own from the 21st of September from Audible and iTunes.